Pregnancy is an involuntary condition that results from our natural biological drives and interactions. It's something that happens to us, not by us. It just happens to you that you get pregnant. It's not something that just happens to you. I mean, there's a really easy solution to not getting pregnant. Don't have sex. When you have sex, part of the unwritten contract that adult people are aware of is, you might get pregnant. After all, biologically speaking, this is the primary function of sexual interaction. It's something that happens to us, not by us. To us, not by us. Not by us. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. And today we're going to be talking about atheists and their views on abortion. Believe it or not, there are both pro-life and pro-choice atheists. The atheists will not be surprised by that, especially since they like to point out that atheism is not a worldview. It's just the lack of a belief in a god or gods. And uh, However, we do have an episode on worldviews in which I uh, talk a little bit about um, things that seem to be commonalities among naturalistic atheists. And it does seem to be a commonality that most atheists are, uh, are pro-choice. Uh, we're going to look at both examples today. We're going to spend most of our time talking about um, uh, atheists who are pro-choice, but I want to begin by jumping right in to a story from an atheist girl uh, who is pro-life, and she uh, I think is like 26 years old, and this is at a diversity in pro-life uh, rally of some sort, and listen to her story as she talks about being 16 years old, becoming pregnant, and here's what she has to say. When I told my dad, uh, he told me immediately I would have an abortion. I asked him if I could adopt. He said no. I wanted to keep my baby. He said no. Abortion was the only option. So I scheduled my appointment uh, with Planned Parenthood, and this Planned Parenthood did not perform the abortion. They simply performed the sonogram, find out how far along I was, where I needed to go. They estimated eight to nine weeks, and when I asked if I could see the screen, she told me no, that um, there was no reason for me to see the screen, I wouldn't be able to see anything, and that was that. I was 16, I was terrified, and I was not as strong-willed as I am now. So I ended up going through with my abortion, which is a whole other long story. Um, but to deal with that, I was very vocally pro-choice for years and years. And so to me, during that time, pro-life meant you were scum of the earth. You were always an asshole. You hated women. You were just, in general, bad people. You didn't care. And I had convinced myself it was a choice that I, that I wanted because that was the only way for me to get out of bed. When I, turn, uh, when I was 19, I became pregnant again with our eldest, who just turned seven on Monday. Oh my God. And I remember going in for my eight-week ultrasound or uh, sonogram with her thinking it was ridiculous because I remember the woman told me that there was nothing to see. So when I looked up on that screen at eight weeks exactly, and there's this little body and a little head and these little nubs for arms and legs and 160 beat per minute heartbeat, my entire world broke. Like there was nothing in me that could prepare me for that moment because it didn't matter what anyone told me. It didn't matter what, what lies there were. Didn't, I'm not saying lies on pro-choice or pro-life side. I mean, just in general, it did not matter what anyone said. This wasn't emotion. This was facts. This was biology in front of me, a human being. And I had to think back three years ago what had to have been terminated. And for me, it took a long time. I went through the steps of different type of pro-lifer and how I felt about people. And seven years later, here I am. And pro-life has meant a lot of different things to me still. And to, to make this quick, pro-life to me is pro-love. I've had an... All right, so uh, what I wanted you to, I wanted to start with this story because a couple of things. One thing, I, I think we can get a little bit academic and theoretical when we talk about this sort of thing, and that's why a lot of times on this channel I like to bring in the stories of real people. Um, and so that's what we've done here. I wanted you to hear it from uh, someone who's been through it and someone who's been through it as an atheist. This is an atheist, and, uh, and, and, and this sets us up to make a point. Now, I realize that atheism is not monolithic, and for some of you who are pro-choice, who are atheists, you're thinking— well, yeah, but well, who cares? Not all atheists agree on everything. I get it. I know that. But what I want to say right early from the beginning here is that 
um, this is not, being pro-life is not merely something for religious people. That's often packaged together, and I understand why. I mean, the Bible does talk about God knitting us together in the womb. God does, uh, the Bible does talk about how uh, God knew Jeremiah before he was born and uh, uh, anointed him to be a prophet. So we, we are aware of those things in Scripture. There are passages that are very hospitable to the pro-life position. And by the way, if you're one of those people who likes to point to certain passages like um, uh, the, the ceremony for the adulterous wife or whatever in uh, in uh, the book of Numbers, then I have a book called Letters from Ignorantia, and I spend a good deal of time on that there. So uh, I'm aware of all that, and th- those arguments, frankly, are terrible. But I wanted you to see this is not strictly a religious thing. There are people who are irreligious. There are people from other religions who do see that this is crazy what we're doing in our nation right now. And by the way, I try to be a really friendly guy on a lot of these, uh, on this podcast. I, I'm genuinely a laid back person. I, I don't get too upset even when people uh, say really offensive things to me. Uh, but this is an, this is an issue where I take no prisoners. I, I think that this, what we're doing, abortion to my mind, is the most, the single most wicked and barbaric thing that we have put our seal of approval on as a society. And so whenever people talk to me about things in the Bible that they think are atrocious, um, I tried to tried to hit on this a little bit when I was doing an interview with um, Shannon Q sometime back, and, and I've had a, a good good uh, relationship, friendship, at least friendly adversaries. I don't I don't know how she would say it uh, with people like her, but I was trying to say I was trying to say to her and for her audience there that. I get that people think about certain Christian views that we are, ab- I mean, this is absolutely horrible that you guys believe that. Uh, likewise, there are, <laughs> there are things that we look at the other side and think that is uh, absolutely uh, off the deep end. And so um, this, is, this is one of those issues. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about it here today. We're going to look at um, a debate between two atheists who are both debating. They're debating each other on the question of, of pro-life and, and pro-choice and abortion. And, uh, but she said something just a moment ago when she looked at that um, ultrasound and saw that child in the womb. She realized this was biology. This was science hitting me. Yes, because science is not your friend at all if you are a pro-choicer. Uh, but but let's just let's just talk about why that is. First of all, um, if you're the kind of person that thinks that the question about uh, that wonders about whether this is a human being or not, um, uh, there is no real debate about whether or not uh, a, a fetus is a human being. Um, the reason that there's no debate about that is because you have human uh, biological material combining with human biological material to create a new, uh, new arrangement of biological material, new human life. Um, and so the question isn't whether this is a human being. In fact, don't take my word for it. Um, take the words of Peter Singer, for example. He says, quote, it is possible to give human being a precise meaning. We can use it as equivalent to member of the species Homo sapiens. Whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt that from the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and an egg is a human being. In fact, Planned Parenthood used to be pretty straightforward about this. Um, in a 1964 pamphlet discussing birth control, the group accidentally let the unborn cat out of the bag saying, quote, absolutely not. An abortion ends the life of a baby after it has begun. You know, you can actually go to my website at braxtonhunter.com or you can get there by going to trinityradio.org and uh, go to the blog page and then search abortion and you'll come up with a blog article where I've linked uh, these statements with their footnotes and even uh, photographs of the Planned Parenthood handouts and, and, and things like that. In fact, take Christopher Hitchens, the late great atheist Christopher Hitchens, what he had to say about it. He said, quote, unborn child seems to me to be a real concept. It's not a growth. You can't say that the issue of rights don't come into question. So the, the reason that they can say all of this is it is just a scientific fact that this is a member of the species Homo sapien. This is a human being. So the question then becomes in, in these discussions is whether or not this human being should be considered a person. Now, let me stop right here and say something, uh, say a couple of things from the heart as we move forward, because we're going to get some, I think, very interesting stuff, some very good stuff. But I want to say something here from the start. Um, if you are a person who has had an abortion, 
there is love for you and there is forgiveness. Um, God loves you. God loved your unborn baby, still loves. Um, and, 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 and all of that is true. There is forgiveness. There is mercy. This is not to guilt people who've been through this. Listen, we are sinners. We make mistakes. Uh, it's, it's very easy in the culture in which we live uh, to accept the societal suggestions that are out there and believe that, hey, I've got really uh, intelligent people with um, high degrees and whole organizations backing them that are talking about this as though it's merely an issue of women's rights. And so, yeah, why, why should I feel bad about this? I mean, this seems like a, 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 a perfectly acceptable thing to do. So I understand that those suggestions are out there. And especially if you're in a position like this young lady, uh, this atheist young lady was in, where she says her father pressured her or ordered her to have an abortion. Okay, th those are interesting circumstances, especially for a young girl like that. So um, I want you to know there is forgiveness, there is love. I, I like what she said there. And I think as Christians, we have got a we've got special currency when it comes to this. Uh, to be pro-life is to be pro-love. We love you. God loves you. And I've done horrible things that I'm ashamed and wouldn't want anyone to know about. And so if you've had an abortion, you, you may feel that same way. But you know what? There is room at the cross. God will forgive that sin. God loves you. He wants to adopt you into his family. All right. So uh, all of that is, is uh, important to say. Secondly, some of you have been listening for a long time, already know this about me, but I... Um, my, my father has a rare genetic blood disease called von Willebrand's, and he has a form of it that is very extreme. In fact, there are three stages of von Willebrand's disease. He's stage three because they don't have a classification further than that. But so far as the doctors are aware, this is from the Mayo Clinic, he has it worse it, he, to be his age, to have lived as long as he has. He, has um, he is the oldest living person with von Willebrand's to this extreme. And... Um, it gets worse with each successive generation. And so when my mother was pregnant with me, uh, the doctor recommended that they have an abortion. And this was in 1979, 1980. And so uh, uh, my parents said, yeah, no thanks. We'll get a second opinion on that. Not because they ever considered it. I was telling this story once. My mom said, you need to make it clear. I never, we never thought for a minute about an abortion. Uh, so making that clear, mom, if you ever see this. But um, so... Uh, so they went to another doctor, and that doctor said, if the child lives for five minutes, it'll be to the glory of God. And uh, so they had you know, several whole churches praying for me, praying that I would be born healthy and without my father's uh, blood disease. Uh, oh, by the way, the reason that the abortion was recommended is because it was suspected by that doctor that if I was born, I would only live a few years. Uh, but I was born without a trace of my father's blood disease, and my children don't have it either. And so I could have very easily been ab aborted. So when you talk about these issues and you think that, oh, you're just, you're just some man who has no vested interest in this. Yes, I am a man who very easily, had I had parents uh, who were willing to have an abortion, I, I might easily have been aborted. So, yeah, I think I, I've got uh, uh, as much right to talk about this issue as anybody else does. Uh, so, but, but this is a heart thing for me. This is an issue that I connect with on a personal level. And for some of you, even more so because you have uh, perhaps had your own experiences in this realm. So this is not, uh, this, this, this episode is not against you. Um, this episode is against something that we are doing that I think is a wicked thing for our society to put its seal of approval on. And so I want to make that clear from the beginning. What, what we're going to do now is we're going to go on to take a look at, uh, oh, so when we talk about, um, this issue of these are human beings. So the question is not whether or not it's a human being in the womb. Uh, the, this, is, this is not a debated issue in science. The science texts uh, don't present confusion about that issue. That, that's not really what's up for debate. What people debate about is at what point personhood can be discussed. Now, if you think that you can answer this question scientifically, you simply can't. Unless you go with me and recognize that to be a human being and to have personhood is one and the same thing. But um, it, the, the, science, the science tells us this is a member of the species Homo sapien. But if you, if you want to separate the, the, the status as a member of the species Homo sapien from at what point it attains uh, this, you know, Homo sapien attains personhood, whether it's when it has a certain level of cognition, uh, when it has a heartbeat, or whatever else... If you want to dissect that and say, okay, personhood is something else, that's what we're talking about. Understand something. Science cannot help you. You have left science 
And this is no longer a scientific discussion for you. Now it has become a philosophical discussion because personhood is in the realm of philosophy when someone has personhood. That is a philosophical um, uh, discussion. So understand that. So you can't keep running back and forth to science on this. You've left that. Uh, the science is not on your side. Uh, unfortunately for pro-choicers, the philosophy is also not on your side. And that's what we're going we're gonna to talk about as we go forward. But I wanted you to be aware of all this as we begin. And I want to go now to a debate that was had uh, in 2012, I think. And it's been a long time ago, but it illustrates this perfectly and uh, this whole thing. Th these are two atheists, I think, uh, having a, a debate about uh, abortion. And this is Matt Dillahunty, obviously, host of the Atheist Experience. Um, and then uh, I forget the name of the other. Christine... Kruzelnicki, I think is her name. Sorry, Christine, if you ever see this. Uh, but uh, we're going to go ahead and, and take a look at something that Matt says here that I think is very interesting, to say the least. Pregnancy is an involuntary condition that results from our natural biological drives and interactions and is often in conflict with our desires, our designs, and our best interests. It's something that happens to us, not by us. It's also a condition that is not without significant risk. Granted, it can have significant risk. But did you all hear what Matt Dillahunty just said? He said, this is, th let's go back and I want to hear this again. It's also important that we discuss this issue plainly. The process of reproduction that our species has evolved to make use of could better be described as the process that makes use of us. Pregnancy is an involuntary condition that results from our natural biological drives and interactions and is often in conflict with our desires, our designs, and our best interests. It's something that happens to us, not by us. Okay, now this is going to become important in this debate, but uh, what he can only mean there is that if you are a person who is having sex, uh, perhaps using contraceptive, perhaps not, but you're having sex on a somewhat regular basis, but you don't want to get pregnant. It just happens to you that you get pregnant. But here's the thing. It's not something that just happens to you. I mean, there's a really easy solution to not getting pregnant. Don't have sex. When you have sex, part of the unwritten contract that adult people are aware of is one of the things that can happen, one of the risks that can come along with this is you might get pregnant. After all, biologically speaking, this is the primary function of sexual interaction is to procreate. So when you start messing around with the procreative stuff, one thing that could happen is you get pregnant. It's not something that just happens to you. It's something that you it's something that you kind of take on as a part of that contract when you begin having sex, even if you use contraceptive. It doesn't happen to you. Now, there's one thing that he says that is very interesting and kind of turns this thing on his head. You'll notice that when I played it back the second time, we got a little bit more, and he said um, that, that our, our biological, you know, the, the evolution has brought us to this place where uh, procreation makes use of us in this way. Now, this, this betrays a bit of Matt's determinism. He's happy to admit that he's a determinist. In that sense, if determinism is true and no one has any free will, then everything that happens is just something that happens to us, right? Because you're not really making any truly free decisions. So perhaps there is a weird consistency there. Uh, but the idea that this just happens to us, realistically speaking, is simply false. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's move on. I want to show you something here. Uh, let's see if, is this where I want to go to this? Yeah. So Matt makes good use of two illustrations here. Uh, one of the illustrations that he makes use of is the, the violin, um, analogy or criticism. And the, the violin analogy has to do with the idea that you would have a violinist attacked, attached to your back. Would you be right or within your rights to, uh, detach yourself from that violinist if, if it killed him? Uh, or to make it more, uh, well, we'll get to the second analogy that he gives about a kidney and would a parent be required to give a kidney uh, to uh, their own child after birth. We'll, we'll get to that in just a little while. But I want to play a couple of clips from an older episode that Jonathan Pritchett and I did on Trinity Radio. Uh, by the way, Jonathan's lost a great deal of weight, so you can compare uh, recent Jonathan with this version of Jonathan. Very, very different story. This was from May 9th of 2018, so this has been a while back. Uh, but we were responding to a 
pro-choice Christian. So if you hear us talking uh, in ways that indicate that, then you'll understand. But um, I'm going to go ahead and start playing because we dissect these analogies here, and uh, and, and I think we did it in a good way. So I'm going to I'm going to kick it over there real quick. But one analogy is the violinist analogy, and the other analogy is the seed blowing into your house. Now here's how she. I'm just giving you what she says in the video. Okay. You're kidnapped, and one of the things is you wake up in the morning and uh, and suddenly there is a violinist attached to your back. Mm -hmm. And you're laying in bed, oh my gosh, now there's this violinist attached to my back. I think that's the way it goes. And and now you have to walk around for nine months with this violinist guy attached to your back. And he can't survive if you sever him. I don't know why it's a violinist. I'm not sure what that... Anyway, uh, so the the point is, the point is, uh, her point is, you don't have, you shouldn't have to do that. Like, this happened to you. And now you shouldn't have to do this because he, you should be right to be able to cut him off. You know, that's his problem. Except for the fact that if you wake up magically with a violinist attached to your back, that's a little bit different. You didn't do anything to make that happen unless you just had a crazy well, night. Yeah. We can't explain. Right. But but- <laughs> it's like the pineapple incident in, in that one show. But uh, How I Met Your Mother with the pineapple cover. Who knows? Um, but... In the text, in the title card, when she was telling the story, it said something about you were kidnapped and you woke up with the violinist. Mm-hmm. So that, that puts this in there. Her example goes into the rape category. Anyway. Oh, someone kidnapped and right. tied and you the, up. She said that in the title card. I don't know if she said it in oh, the Oh, I see. You paused it. But, yeah, but there was a okay. title card. There was a kidnapping. That okay. You're kidnapped, and then you wake up and you have this violinist tied into your, your um, vital organs so that the violinist can survive, and in nine months it'll be fine. And you shouldn't have to... Be have a, some sort of legal obligation to uh, care for that violinist because it was forced upon you. Now, I think this backfires for her because we can put that in the rape category. Yeah. This is a, because look, and we will talk about rape. Right. Put it in the rape category for now. So let's just so this analogy doesn't work for me, but even still, let's say I was kidnapped. Should there be a legal obligation that I maintain this other person's life because a violinist. He's not even a child. I can't look to this guy and say, sorry, you got to die. You know, I've got to suck it up and sacrifice for nine months saying, all right, buddy, it's, it's the two of us because, you know, if I kill you, I go to prison. Even though I didn't want this to happen, I shouldn't just say, sorry, buddy, my life and my convenience is worth more than your existence. And I don't have a problem with a law being there saying his existence matters. Even yeah. if, even so if you're saying if we live in a world where suddenly violinists become attached to people's backs, whether yeah. because of kidnapping or magic or whatever, you're saying you feel like, well, okay, well, that's what happens to you, and now you yeah. you, you got to live with Crappy things that. happen in life <laughs> yeah. to yeah. people in general. I mean, there's no, you know, uh, so that's that. if that becomes your lot in life, yeah, it should be a crime that I could say, sorry, fella, you're, you're bothering me, so you have to die so I can... So I can sit on the couch without pushing you. And you, the, you made me think of something, too, because yeah. this comes up. Because you'll hear in some of these debates about body rights issues like this. But here's the thing is we are talking in this case. She's saying she thinks it shouldn't be illegal. And so legalities is kind of what we're talking about. And a lot of times I'll be in the midst of discussing abortion with someone and say, but yeah, but it's totally legal to X, Y, and Z. Okay, well, yeah, okay, fine. We're not talking about what is legal or not. We're talking about what should be legal or not. Or, and really for us as theologians and as people that think philosophically and this sort of thing, we're concerned with, is it right or wrong? And we think that it's wrong. And and I'm not trying to say it's a bad analogy. I understand the purpose of analogy so you can try to communicate an idea. So I want to be clear. I'm not trying to poke a hole in the analogy. What I'm doing is I'm saying, giving... Take the analogy, grant it all. Grant it all and saying, yes, human life matters to the point where there should be a law saying, even if I was kidnapped, I can't kill this person. Yeah, well, and and, here's and they're going to say they're going to say, but, but okay, what if a woman is raped? And I'm well, we're going to get to there. We're going to get to that. But per that analogy, if you can say that you can be kidnapped and have a uh, a uh, violinist wired into your um, vital organs, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, the corollary to that is you can also volunteer to have violinists, you know. Through natural processes attached to you, mm-hmm. you can go volunteer to, to do this. Now, once you once you made that commitment, right? And if you want to make this analogy 
This is a stupid analogy. To well, this to is a stupid it, analogy. To explain it, if I agree to hook this violinist up to my heartbeat and my Why is it a violinist? I, who cares? I do. Why, there's got to be a reason. But once I consent to the process that inevitably results in a violinist, do I, am I obligated to that violinist because I consented to a process that led to a violinist? Yes. Yeah, but that's not even right because there the person is trying to get a violinist on their back. That's like a person that's going to a fertility clinic or something. What you really want to say, and this is why this is a stupid analogy, because it isn't an analog, is what you want to say is, you want to say, there is a club that if you go there, there is a reasonable chance that you'll come out with a violinist. Infection. What in the world? Yeah, okay. This is why this analogy is dumb. Yeah, okay. And if you decide to freely go to that club, that club represents sex. It, yes. It's not a sex. Look, you go in there and you come out with a violinist on your back. Guess what? That was in the fine print before that's, you attended right. this club. And when you, <laughs> ha when you, yeah. And so, <laughs> right. So even granting that, you have an obligation to that violinist at that point. Yeah. Because you knew that's, that could happen. Right. 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 Same same thing here. I'm sorry if you have sex. Oh my god. No mystery how babies come. You have an obligation. All right, so there you go. That is a response to this violinist analogy. But there's another analogy, and uh, we actually covered it as well. And that analogy is, uh, it's like, what if seed blows into your house and a tree begins to grow up from under the floor? Wouldn't you be within your rights to cut that tree down? And this is a much briefer clip, but here's what we say. The worse analogy than the violin analogy, which this comes up again here, is the seed. She said the same philosopher talked about, see, it, you, if, if seed's blowing towards your house, Sometimes it gets in your house. You can put up a screen on your back porch that won't allow the seed, to, like from the trees and stuff, to blow into your house. That's like birth control. Mm -hmm. Okay, You can stop it from getting in. But if it gets in, if you don't use birth control, you don't now have to. Nobody thinks you're obligated now. Oh, the seed got in my house, so now i got to let this tree grow up in my living room. Okay, when I was listening to that, and, and granted, I'm just, what she gave me is all I've got to go on. Mm -hmm. Trees are not as valuable as human beings. Right. Trees have almost no value compared to now, a human being. Now, the being. point of the analogy is, this is trying to say unintended pregnancy as a result of sex is yeah. like the... is like seed blowing into your living room. Yeah. She doesn't understand that there's a worldview out there that exists that pertains mostly to the atheists making these kind of arguments. All right, we're not we're not going to get into that, but he gets into talking about how people are like animal rights people and and stuff that that try to act as though every animal is uh, or at least higher animals are as valuable as human beings. But um, anyway, so so there's a couple of the analogies. Now, what about um, what about uh, uh, the analogy that Matt Dillhunty gives uh, on top of these, where he says uh, you wouldn't require uh, someone like so forget the violinist. You wouldn't, you wouldn't require that a, or consider it murder or wrong or something, if a parent, if, if a child needed a kidney, now this child's been born, say it's seven years old, and it needs a kidney, and the parent could give the kidney, but the parent doesn't give the kidney, you wouldn't consider that morally wrong. You wouldn't consider that murder. Here's, here's the problem with that. First of all, I'm not sure, that sounds pretty, um, that sounds like there could be some obligation there, but, uh, but all things being equal. But let's, let's talk about the relevant difference. When a mother who has a child growing inside of her decides to no longer support that child, it's not that she just passively doesn't do anything or stops doing something. She, or more specifically, the abortionist, actively kills the child. That's what's happening. It's an active kill. It's not just refraining from helping. It's an active kill. That's why it is substantially different than just refraining passively from offering support. That is a completely different sort of a situation. But at this point, let's get back to uh, this debate. And let's hear what else Dilla Hunty has to say at a different point. I'd love to go through the whole debate, but you don't want me to take the time to do that. It's likely that you'll hear, hear appeals to the value of life, things like it's human, it's alive, it's equal. But is it really? When we talk about the value of life, we're not talking about the value of a heartbeat. We're talking about the value of experiencing life, living life, awareness. Terry Shiva was dead long before anybody pulled the plug, and a fetus, while, it's as, while it is as alive as a mass of cancer cells, under one definition, is not alive in the sense that it is not reasonably equivalent. So the, the, the extent of your experiences 
is is what makes it okay or not to kill someone. This brings up the this has to beg the question: if someone is uh, unconscious and not dreaming and having no experience, is it okay to kill that person, or is it because they will and have had experiences and will have experiences? Well, to that extent, these unborn children are going to have experiences. So th this is um, there's a big problem with this. But what this hints at is that there is something. What Dillahunty has to be saying is there is something substantially different about born human beings than there is from unborn human beings. There is a sub, there is some substantial difference. I mean, this is what all pro-choice people have to say: is there is something substantially different that makes it okay to kill the unborn, but it w where it wouldn't be okay to kill the born. Now, uh, the lady that is debating here, Christine, that's debating with him, she actually brings up one of the famous responses to this, which is called the sled argument of Stephen Schwartz. I've been using this argument for years because it's brilliant, because what Stephen Schwartz does is he actually lists out the only possible differences between the unborn and the born and shows that if you were to be consistent about this, it would ultimately make you a monster uh, for the following reasons. In fact, I actually have a video that I made uh, in 2017 on this. It's, I'm only going to show a portion of the video, so just staying with me. Uh, but um, I have this whole video. You can share this whole video on your own if you want to share it around. It's a short video. It's in our short video playlist. You can go find it there, um, but, uh, but I'm going to play just this portion that I made because it summarizes this, I think, pretty well. So let's take a look at that now. Stephen Schwartz put together what I think is probably one of the best cases against abortion that can be made. He uses the word SLED, which is an acronym. Each letter stands for something else, a different part of the case against abortion. The S in the word SLED is for size. If we are to determine that the unborn are not persons because of their size, i.e. they're just a small collection of cells, then the argument of the pro-choicer proves far too much. The argument would amount to saying the smaller a human life is, the less a person it is. Thus, short people are less persons than tall people? My wife would certainly object to the notion that because she is head and shoulders less tall than I am, that makes her less of a person. I actually prefer petite women, so I would object on preference to this anyway. Yet we all know deep down that the size of a person's body doesn't have anything to say about their personhood. We cannot bigotedly discriminate based on size. L is for level of development. A common pro-choice claim is that because the unborn are not only small, but also less developed, only a collection of cells, that on that basis they're not actually persons. They're not yet totally developed human life, but merely potentially totally developed human life. The problem is that what can only be meant here is that the unborn are potential adult human beings, but not yet adult or fully developed. However, again, this would prove far too much for the pro-choicer. My six-year-old daughter is also not a fully developed adult human yet. Is she less of a person? She's a potential adult human. Her level of development is at a reasonably early stage. In fact, she's less developed than my nine-year-old daughter, who is in turn less developed than me. I guess I'm the only real person involved in this equation. But obviously this is false. We cannot bigotedly discriminate based on the level of development. E is for environment. The most used response in favor of abortion is that the unborn are not actually persons because of their environment. They're in the womb rather than outside of the womb. Because of this unusual location, they are said to be potential persons, but not yet actual persons. The problem is that in no other aspect of life do we determine whether someone is a person based on location. Are Africans less persons than North Americans from a North American perspective because they're in a different location? Does one stack status of personhood change based on which room of the house they are currently inhabiting? Naturally, the answer is, of course not. We cannot bigotedly discriminate based on environment. D is for degree of dependency. Since the unborn are dependent on the mother for survival, via nutrients, amniotic fluid, etc., the pro-choicers often imply that they are not persons and it is okay to terminate them at the will of the mother who is, after all, supplying the means by which the unborn survive. But what about the disabled? 
elderly people living in assisted living facilities, or anyone else who is dependent on another for their survival. Do they also cease to be persons upon developing such needs? The answer is, of course, no, they do not. We cannot bigotedly discriminate based on the degree of dependence. Thus, pro-lifers are justified in saying that abortion is an ignorant, narrow-minded, backwoods, bigoted, animalistic practice. At least that's what we would all consider it to be if we applied these same principles to any other human life, any other person. I thought the societal norm was to treat humans like humans. I thought the mantra of the day was, I believe in science. Science is not your friend if you're a pro-choicer. Neither is philosophy. Neither is truth. That is the, uh, the the video laying out the sled argument. So I, I wanted you to be aware of that because we see here that uh, we're, we're starting to talk about personhood. Well, what does what does Matt Dillahunty have to say when that distinction is brought up? That that I mean, we don't make a distinction. We think that a human being is a person. But if, if this issue of personhood comes up, here's what we want to say. If you want to say that the unborn are not yet persons until a certain point. Okay, like most people are reasonable enough not to say that the birth canal somehow magically uh, grants personhood to someone, right? So, so that's out. So at some point along development, personhood comes, comes on. Some people will say it's when there's a heartbeat. Some will say when uh, the, the, the unborn become conscious. Some will say at a certain other stage of neural development. Uh, but understand, when you're doing that, you're, you're kind of guessing. Uh, if you're an atheist, you have to say, I mean, Christians are happy to say it's, it's a human being and it's a person the whole way through, at least many Christians. Uh, but the atheist has to say, almost arbitrarily, I'm going to pick this point rather than this point. And, and here's the problem with that. You can never be sure, you can never know for sure whether what you're doing is terminating a person or not. Uh, that's the best you can do. The best you can do is not be sure. So it is always the case that you might be uh, hurting a person. It's interesting because I was recently watching Cameron Bertuzzi, and we're going to look at a clip of that in just a second to kind of close this out, but um, uh, interviewing uh, 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 an ethics professor. And he was talking about this, uh, somebody else was giving this uh, similar analogy to what I've been giving for years. Uh, and that kind of, the, the intuitive understanding of this is pretty evident. As far back as about 15 years ago, I was using this example, that it's if you, if you don't know for sure, which is the best you can do on atheism, is I don't know for sure whether I'm uh, terminating a person or not. It's like there's a doorway you want to go through, and it's inconvenient, uh, in fact, really inconvenient, that this thing is in your way. And so there's a button you can push, and this booth is in the doorway. There's a booth in the doorway that's blocking your path. It's got no windows, like a phone booth, but with no windows. You can't see what's inside. Um, now, this is an analogy. I had an atheist one time misunderstand what I was saying and saying uh, that I'm comparing a woman to a booth or a womb to a booth. Well, what I'm saying is the thing that's similar in both of these analogies is there might be life or there might not be life, and you don't know for sure, right? That's the analogy. So there's a booth, and that booth may or may not contain a man. And there's a button you can push that will blow up the booth such that you can then walk through and go where you want. It's more convenient now, right? But you might be killing a person when you do this. Okay, what should you do? You should definitely not push the button and blow up the booth. Because while there may not be a person in there, there might be. And to my mind, when you combine the sled argument with this, there just simply is no way. There is no way to morally support the abortion position. It just cannot be done. I have listened. This is one of those issues that I am so certain of. And whenever I hear people talk about this, they stumble all over themselves trying to make a case around this. This is, um, you just can't do it. And so, because what you're doing is you're pitting, you, and, and Dillahunty's going to talk about this in a minute, but you're pitting the, the, your liberty, your, your right to freedom. It is a virtue. It is a freedom. Your freedom, that virtue, against human life. Both of these are good things. But if you have to pick one over the other, which one wins? Life wins. Come on, folks. Life wins. So 
If you're unsure and you can't be sure on atheism, at what point this should be considered a person? If you can't be sure, then you should not do it at any stage. You should not be pro-choice. You should definitely be pro-life. So science is not on your side. Philosophy is not on your side. There, there just isn't anywhere for you to run. There's nowhere to go. This is wrong. This shouldn't be done. So under, what, if, what if an atheist understood everything that I'm saying right now and still wanted to move forward and say that it's somehow moral? Well, you'd end up with something like this. I could acknowledge, I could grant, as a matter of course, yes, the fetus is a person, and let's give it every right a person has. I won't do that, because I think that's stupid. But I could do that, and it still wouldn't change the facts that this is a, now we are in a situation where there are two persons whose rights are in conflict, and we must come to some reconciliation the, the point that I didn't get to make in the opening is that denying women this basic human right makes them slaves to their biology. It attempts to, attempts to justify this thinly veiled naturalistic fallacy, basically amount to, yes, you're pregnant and you don't want to be, that must be terrible for you. I'm sorry that nature has screwed you over, but that's the way it has to stay. Unless we find that your life is at risk, I'm assuming you do make an exception in the case of the mother's life. If, if there is no other. Okay, yeah. So, so you understand that he's granting, like, he doesn't think that these are persons. Uh, he must think at some point they're persons in the womb, unless Dillahunty is one of those people who thinks that either they're still not persons after they're born, and then somewhere down the line they attain personhood, or the birth canal magically instantiates personhood he must think at some point they're persons so but um he's kind of great like for the sake of argument let's say they're persons well now we have these two persons who are at odds um and because it would be it would it would be really awful is what he's saying it'd be really awful it's not fair that this woman now has to have this then then she ought to be able to kill another person if you don't see the problems with this, if you don't see the problems with this, I, I don't know. Th this is an issue that really, really does get to me because the very idea that this is going on in modern society and that we didn't do away with this centuries ago is shocking to me. There is one more thing I want us to see. Uh... I think that you pronounce this guy. This is Dr. Tim Shaw. I think that's right. And this is from Capturing Christianity, Cameron Bertuzzi's um, YouTube channel. And I want you to hear this. But, uh, okay, so related to the topic of abortion is the question of bodily autonomy. Mm -hmm. Like, doesn't the woman have the right to do whatever she wants with her body? And then what would you say with Thompson's famous violinist argument? Yeah, so two things. First, um, the unborn isn't a part of the woman's body. Uh, and so, so, that, so it's not a matter of what she does to her own body. There is another individual in question. And even and if you she- you said that this is uncontroversial. What's right? that? That this is a human person. Oh no, that it's a human being. Yeah, right? it's a human being. Yeah. The, the unborn is a human being, yeah. the fetus, the zygote, whatever. Yeah. It's a human being, but it's not the woman. It's a different being. Yeah. So it's not as if, you know, we, we may grant for the sake of argument that women have the right to do whatever they want to their own body. Actually, I actually think that nobody has the right to do whatever they want to their own body. I think that's- Which we already talked about. Yeah, which we already talked about. But even if a woman did have a right to do whatever she wanted to her own body, the unborn isn't a part of her body. The unborn resides in her body, but it's not a part of her body, right? And so when it comes to de decisions like, you know, what, what can a woman do to her own body? Well, we also have to consider the rights and interests of a third party. Abortion, abortion isn't just, you know, an, an issue involving the woman herself. It's something involving another party that's been created uh, in an act of uh, sex. And also, you know, the man also has a role in this too. It's not, it's not just the woman as well. It's also the unborn and the man. Now, Judith Jarvis Thompson had a famous argument that challenged this. Thompson gave the example of a, a violinist who's hooked up to... Um, 
I believe it was like a kidney dialysis machine or something like that. And um, the argument is that, well, surely the violinist has the right, I'm just, I'm just summarizing the argument here, but the argument is surely that the violinist has the right to unplug uh, from the machine because he doesn't have a duty to sustain the life or the individual connected to the violinist has the right to unplug from the machine because he hasn't, he doesn't have the duty to sustain the violinist's life. Well, I, there's a number of things you could say about this. Frank, Frank Beckwith has, uh, uh, in his book, Defending Life, he gives like five or six reasons why this is a terrible argument. One, one crucial point of this analogy is that the relationship between a mother and her child is different from the relationship between uh, two strangers. Right? Listen to this. Parents have special obligations to their children uh, that strangers don't have special obligations to each other. So a mother uh, has special, a special obligation to take care of her child that, um, whereas for two strangers, that might be what ethicists call an extraordinary duty. Whereas for women, uh, a mother taking care of her child, it would be an ordinary duty. So there's, there's, uh, there's for one, uh, a disanalogy to be made there. Second, I would say that um, unplugging from the violinist is different from an abortion. In one case, you're withdrawing treatment. In another case, you're actually doing something that ends, you're actually performing an act of killing. Abortion isn't just withdrawing treatment. Abortion is the active, active um, going into a womb and uh, ending the life of a uh, unborn human. So it's not just withdrawing treatment. It's actually an active act of killing. So it's not, it's not um, the act of letting die. It's the act of act actively killing. So, All right. So I wanted you to see that. So now we've surveyed a lot of this literature, a lot of this uh, content, a lot of the stuff that comes up. But what I want you to understand here, I, I want you to get a couple of things out of this. The, the takeaways from this should be at least this much. Number one, if you're an atheist out there or a Christian, you don't have, it's like, and I know you know this, I don't want to insult my audience's intelligence by speaking as though you don't know this, but sometimes there are things that we know, obviously, but we need to realize, we need to remind ourselves of. Um, uh, even if you're not a Christian, you can appreciate this. The Apostle Peter says in Second Peter, that um, chapter one, that, that he's, he's saying these things, not because his audience doesn't know these things, but he wants to call it to their remembrance. He wants to remind them of it. I want to remind you all of something. There are uh, obviously Christian pro-life people. There are atheist pro-life people. It's not like, if you, if you really want to say, if you really want to say atheism is not a worldview, it's just the lack of belief in God, then put some legs on that. Be a free thinker in areas like this and recognize that the only reasonable response to this discussion is to be adamantly and loudly pro-life. That is the position that, that uh, I think reasonable people should take. Um, that's the first thing. Secondly, I want you to remember Stephen Schwartz sled argument. The sled argument is really powerful. What, what differentiates the unborn from the born size, uh, level of development, environment, and degree of dependence. But in no other area outside of the womb, do we think size or level of development or environment or degree of dependence makes someone more valuable than someone else. And if you said that you would be considered kind of bigoted and backwoods and, uh, you know, all those horrible, awful things. Now, I know that that's not who you are. So then don't support that when it comes to the unborn. Um, support a pro-life position. So the sled argument is really powerful, and I've yet to hear a compelling way around it. Also keep in mind that uh, if you want to say that personhood is something that doesn't come along with being a human being, but personhood is instantiated at some point during the pregnancy or is m magically given by the birth canal or happens somewhere after birth, understand that you are somewhat arbitrarily or at least subjectively deciding upon where that should be. And you can say, well, I've got this scientific uh, stuff that says that at this point there's cognition and at this point there's brain activity. Okay, why is that the deciding factor? And if you give me your opinion about why it should be, that is your subjective opinion. So you are subjectively arriving at a conclusion. There is no scientific answer to this question because this is a philosophical question about personhood. And so science can't save you here. But then, of course, as we saw, philosophy 
works against you as well with the sled argument and with the booth argument that you you wouldn't if you have if you're just arbitrarily having to uh, based on your own subjective opinion decide where personhood begins then you can't be sure you may be very confident but you'll never have like absolute cartesian certainty about this which means it's like pushing a button to blow up a booth so that you can conveniently walk through a door the booth may or may not have a man in it and you should never blow up that booth if you're not sure, even if you're 95% sure, you shouldn't blow up that booth because there might be someone inside and you should not support abortion because you don't know for sure when personhood begins. Uh, so if you're an atheist, you should not be uh, pro-choice. You should be pro-life. Now, for a Christian, it's pretty easy. God knits us together in the womb. Um, and uh, he, he's doing a work. It's not to us to play God and destroy the work that God is doing. Um, and that is a very serious thing. Life is sacred. Um, some people say dignity, uh, the, the dignity of life. I don't like that. I like sacredness of life. I guess what I'm trying to say is we are sacred. We have an ascribed value. We are valuable because God placed value on us. We are made in his image. It's easy for a Christian. It might not be that easy for, um, for an atheist. But I actually think that it is, because I've walked with you here through the reasons why you cannot, at the very least, you cannot be um, confident. And this is, and listen to me, this is too serious of an issue. This is too serious of an issue for you to say, well, you know, I'm not sure exactly how to shoot down all that, but you know what, that, of course he's going to say stuff like that. He's a Christian. I'm just going to move on with my life. I'm pro-choice. Come on, I've been pro-choice. Women's rights. Listen, you cannot do that. This is too serious for you to brush off what I'm saying. If you can't find a good, convincing answer to these questions, then you should not continue in pro-choice positions because that's how serious this is. Now, lastly, I want to remind you what I said at the beginning of the episode. God loves you. Whether you believe in God or not, God loves you, and he believes in you. And if you are a person who has had experience in this area, by which I mean you've had an abortion, the idea is not that you have to continue carrying the burden of shame for the rest of your life or guilt or anything like that. That's how people treat the Christians, as though we're, we're trying to heap the guilt and the shame onto people who've had abortion. That's not it. The Christian position is, we're all sinners. And as sinners, we have done things, we have done things that we, want, we don't want either, uh, that we don't want people to know about, and that we wish we didn't have. The good thing is, He uh, carries our guilt and our shame. He died in our place. He covered our sins. And as a result, you can be forgiven and you can be made clean and you can be free of whatever guilt might be there. Uh, just like my last episode, I know this will not be the most popular, uh, at least in how it's received, but I think this is the truth about the nature of reality. And I look forward to seeing you next time on Trinity Radio.